Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Today we actually have, I think, 11 questions. Yes, 11 questions. Um, and that is really just because uh, there were so many good ones and I didn't, I didn't have any way to, you know, I couldn't decide. So we put them all in. Um, and if you didn't notice, I am in Washington State visiting my family. This is, I told Sean we just switched to different curtains. Da, 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 da. Um, and we forgot our headphones, so that's why I am sans headphone uh, today. But we, ha we still have your questions, tons of questions. They're very good, as always. And if any of you are worried, Sean and I made it here easily, no problems. Definitely hit some ice in Portland when we were um, going out of Oregon into Washington. They had an ice storm that day, so that was a little rough, but no spinning out, nothing scary. We are perfectly fine. Our car is perfectly fine. Everything was good. Everybody made it safe and sound. Um, so yeah, without further ado, let's get into those questions. Now, question number one says, hey, Katie, what if I actually don't want to get better? Sometimes I catch myself being happy that I have a mental illness. I experienced childhood abuse from my grandma, and probably because of that, I developed BPD or borderline personality disorder, if you don't know. I have so much anger in me. I feel really upset that the abuse happened to me and I did not receive any help when I needed it. Also, I caught myself negating my abuse. That's very common. It was, quote unquote, just an emotional, it was just emotional abuse. And all adults back then told me, just accept it. Your grandma is old and that's the way that she is. I have so much trouble admitting that I've been abused. My struggles with mental health somehow validate this childhood trauma, and I have moments when I don't want any change. Sometimes I glorify my personality disorder because it validates my trauma, as no one else did. I want my suffering to be seen and heard. I have so much fear that once I get better, my abuse will be forgotten. It's so absurd, but I can't help sabotaging my progress. Can you please advise? And thanks for everything you do. And there are some comments after this as well that I'll get into that people had like additional comments to add on, but... It's very common to feel like the, the simple act, or not simple act, that's actually a bad wording, but to feel like the, the work that we do in recovery and the act of recovering can some, in some ways feel like it invalidates or negates the abuse. And I think the, the honest truth about that thought process is that it happens mainly at the beginning of the work. Because as we start to feel better, we realize that we can acknowledge the pain and still continue to move forward. Does that make sense? It's almost like at the beginning, we're like, hey, if the goal is for me not to feel this way anymore or to overcome this so that it's not a burden and I don't feel the pain as often, then that goal seems like it means that what happened wasn't a big deal and like I don't have a right to feel bad anymore. Does that make sense? It's almost like our, our goal in and of itself almost seems invalidating. But what I would encourage you to do is instead of looking out at that long-term goal, instead focus in on what we're doing today and how that makes us feel better now because how we feel is terrible, right? I don't think anybody would, would uh, disagree with the fact that being um, having PTSD symptoms and being in that hypervigilant state or that traumatized state is shitty and terrible and we don't want it. And so I think that that could be what's happening here. And that's when I read this question, that's where my gut went was like, oh, I think it might be because of that goal and feeling like that negates it. Um, and also, I just want to say that negating the abuse or downplaying it like it was quote unquote, just whatever is is very common and very normal. And 
the person that asked this question actually kind of gave themselves their own reasoning and answer behind it, which is very true that like no one else validated it. So I didn't think it was that big of a deal. Everybody told me that that's just how my grandma is and you just deal with it. And, you know, I don't know, essentially telling you that any reaction or any upset as a result of it, uh, it shouldn't be happening. Like it's not okay. And like, you don't have a right to feel that way. And that invalidation can be really hard to hear. And so we slowly, but surely, unfortunately, take that phrasing and those words that the way that people have responded to us and we take that in as fact and we absorb it and it becomes a belief of ours right we believe that it's not that big of a deal and that we're overreacting or grandma is just that way and all of that and so it can take a little while working in therapy and getting that support to almost deprogram that belief but we can do it and it's done all the time and all of us just so you know just hopefully for some normalization all of us have some false beliefs that aren't serving us and are only harming us. And we all have to kind of be reprogrammed to validate our experience, feel how we feel, know that it's not going to overwhelm us. It's not going to kill us to work through it, that we can with the right support, move through it and feel better. And that doesn't mean that it didn't happen or that it's not important or it wasn't as bad as we thought it was. It just means that we have processed it because we don't need to have that burden each and every day. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense because there's a lot to trauma um, and trauma recovery. And, you know, I've talked, I have tons of videos on my channel about trauma. If you just look on YouTube, Katie Morton trauma, or I have a whole series I did with my good friend, uh, Dr. Alex Altman, who's a trauma specialist. We talk about all things there. Um, So yeah, so there's, I want to make sure I answer all the questions. So what if I don't actually want to get better? I think it's more to do again, like I said, with that goal and that goal feeling like it's negating how we, all the pain that we've sustained. And Borderline personality disorder, yes, is often developed from trauma. Not always, but a lot of times it is. Um, and okay, I'm just I'm just going through this again really quick. And of course, I think she says sometimes I glorify my personality disorder because it validates my trauma. I think that's very normal and very common for us to glom on, meaning like attach to a mental illness diagnosis because it can feel it can be so reassuring and validating to have something recognized, like have a name to put to how we feel because no one else was doing that for us. Do you know what I mean? And so anyways, that's, that's very, very common. Um, now let's get into the questions in the comments below this. And someone said, what can I do to trust my feelings more? So it might make it a bit easier for me to accept that what I experienced was abuse. So in order to trusting your feelings, it takes it takes some time, and really the work is so. Here's here's what we'll need to do in therapy with with our therapist is to notice the the conversations that we have with ourselves about how we feel. Like for instance, the person who asked the initial question was saying like I downplay it like it was only quote unquote only emotional abuse or. I've had many patients tell me, well, it only happened for like a year and then it never happened again. So like, why at 24 am I still dealing with this, right? We can feel that way. Or like, why at 46 am I still experiencing or worrying and dealing with this thing that happened to me when I was seven? And we can have this kind of like conversation with ourselves that is very invalidating, very negating, very minimizing, where we're like, no, 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 I should be over this. We should, we should all over it, right? (laughs) You know, I've said that in the past, like we should all over ourselves with things like this. Take your time. You have every right to be upset no matter, you know, when things happen. But in order to change those feelings and those thoughts about it, we're going to have to come up with more balanced thoughts. Meaning, 
So instead of me saying to myself, hey, that happened when I was five. Why am I still having trouble with this? Blah, 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 blah. It was only, quote unquote, only emotional abuse. I should be over this. Da, 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 da. That's not helpful. That's actually perpetuating this feeling terrible. So that person's question about how, um, how can I trust my feelings more? We have to first notice that self-talk and it doesn't have to be positive. We don't have to fight back against all those thoughts with a positive thought. We just have to fight back with a more balanced thought. So that thought could be something like, um, yes, it happened a long time ago, but I'm open to the, to, I'm open to understanding and accepting that I could still be affected or yes, it, it was quote unquote only emotional abuse, but I seem to be upset by it or maybe, maybe I'm upset by that emotional abuse, even if I don't think it was that big of a deal. Do you see what I mean? We're not necessarily trying to make it 100% positive, but we are trying to move it away from that negative into more balanced kind of bridge statement land as we move towards the positive stuff. And so as you do that, you will be able to trust your feelings more because you'll be able to acknowledge and accept them. But it's a slow process. Be patient with yourself. Pick you know, two to three thoughts a day if you can, maybe like, and don't have to do it every day. When I say two or three thoughts a day, when you're doing this work, I would like you to do it at least three times a week, maybe four. If you can, five would be great. But we're going to try to pick a few of those very, very common thoughts that we have and and very common beliefs we have about ourselves and our experience. And we're going to try to move that negative, minimizing thought process over into more positive, like bridge statement, possibility land, as I like to call it. And then the final question is, is it possible that we can relapse completely even after years of treatment and have to start from square one? No. And here's why. Even if it feels that way, which you could feel like, hey, I'm back at square one, like, oh my God, this is terrible. We still know what tools helped us. We still know what made us feel better. And we still have that experience and experience is everything when it comes to this. Think of the first time you ever sat in a therapy session. Like I remember when I was probably 15, uh, I think her name was Sue was like my first therapist. And I was so nervous. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how to talk about anything. And now flash forward, I'm 37. So, you know, 20, yeah, 22 years. Wow. 22 years of like being in and out of therapy off and on as needed I go into therapy like whatever, I hit the light, I sit down. It's like I'm already ready and I kind of know. And that experience, even if I wasn't even using the tools that I've learned over the years and not applying them, I still have that experience and I still know when she says things. I'm like, yeah, I probably should be doing that. I should be journaling that. I should be tracking my thoughts, right? It's just that much quicker. And I think that that component in and of itself does not, means that we will never start back at square one. Does that make sense? And so the fact that we have those those tools, we know how to use those tools, and we've already done the work, we will never go back a square one. But that doesn't mean, again, validation. It doesn't mean that we can't feel terrible and we can't feel like emotionally we're back a square one. But I want you to know that the work that you've done, the progress you've made is never lost, okay? I hope that that helps. I know you guys, I want you all to know that trauma work is fucking hard and I recognize that and I want you to know it's okay to feel however you feel and take as much time as you need as you work through it. But just try, please, please, please try to challenge those thoughts that minimize um, even shit talking ourselves, right? Those negative, like you're so lazy, you're so stupid. Try to notice those thoughts when they're happening and move them into those bridge statements, balance thoughts, and more into a positive space over time. Because I swear to God, it will change your life. It will help the recovery process move that much more quickly. And honestly, even as someone who doesn't have PTSD, 
doing that work and just noticing the conversation that you have with yourself, you immediately realize how horribly you talk to yourself and it's it's almost it's shocking but then it's not and then as you as you try to talk more kindly just trust me things get better okay let's move into question number two katie i've always been curious about what you would do if one of your patients has completely opposing views to you for instance what would you do if they turned out to be homophobic sexist etc this got a lot of thumbs ups and it's funny because i don't think i've i've had one patient who was definitely a little bit, uh, had some like racist statements that they'd made throughout our conversations together. But other than that, I don't think I've ever had a, a patient tell me that they were homophobic or I've never had any st- other that, that came to mind, um, you know, for having a patient that has opposing views to me. But the truth about it is in therapy, it, I'm not there to judge and I'm not there to give you my beliefs, even if I know you know, like homophobia to me is, is just ignorance. Like people should be able to love who they love and that that's none of my business. And it's not up to anybody else to make decisions about that. And to even, you know, it just, it seems very silly and very ignorant to me. However, in sessions with my patients that they express those views, I always try to, and I'm not perfect because I'm a human, but I always try to come to that conversation with no judgment and to seek to understand their perspective. Because I will tell you guys this, being out in on YouTube and in the social media space, as well as just a human in this world, I recognize that these, you know, sexism, racism, homophobia, all of those types of things come out of just an inability to process our own fears and upsets. And so we try to put it onto somebody else. We try, we, we pick a certain group and we put all that anger, fear, upset onto them. And so just recognizing that those those issues come out of feelings, our own feelings of inadequacy, anger, fear, upset that we don't know what to do with. We have no coping skills. We, you know, then expel it onto other people. Like I've talked about in the past about, you know, even dealing with hate online as a person who puts themselves online. I know that every video comment or any kind of hate that I receive personally is because that person feels a hundred times worse. And so I think just recognizing that, it allows me to to not judge, judge or take it personally, but instead seek to understand what's going on with them and work for them, work with them to help them heal whatever that pain upset is going on. And I know that sounds very, I don't know, maybe like phony or like I'm putting up with something I shouldn't put up with. But I really think that seeking to understand and helping people heal from the pain that they're feeling takes away all this excess hate, which we're seeing online, unfortunately, now more than ever. And I don't really know why that is. I have a lot of hypotheses about it, like that social media perpetuates hate because that people, you know, it stirs people up on both sides of an issue and then they want to argue more. And it, you know, then that gets more clicks and views. So then it gets served up more. So more people see it and it's it's like this snowball effect, right? But I think having a patient that has a completely opposing view to me, it, yes, it would be challenging in my own as a, you know, as a person being around someone who maybe has some hateful views that I don't understand. But again, the therapist's job is not to agree with everything a patient says or think just like them. It's more seeking to understand figuring out where that comes from, where that hate or anger or fear comes from and working to heal that because that's where, you know, the real therapeutic work comes in. And hopefully we can help them understand that, hey, I think you're, you know, uh, my guess would be that let's say you are homophobic 
the the hate or anger that you feel about your father or your mother or your sister or your brother whoever um i think that you're you know taking that out on these people it's like kind of displacement of anger and upset and it, once we can realize that then then we can heal from it and so that could take some time but i wouldn't have a problem seeing someone who had differing views for me actually I'd, I'd kind of welcome the challenge because it's good for me as a person and as a therapist to be able to sit with someone who i don't agree with and have actual conversations and seek to see their side of things versus just shouting or being mad or or not wanting to see them shutting them out um i think the more that we can understand each other hear each other out and work to you know heal our pain the less hate we'll see in the world in general does that make sense i hope so okay let's move on to question number three it says hi katie is there a way for me to open up in therapy i get so many questions about this type of thing you guys i have a great therapist which is very supportive but there are sessions when it's really hard or even impossible to talk about certain things it's very normal during those sessions which are quiet ones we've all had those right I feel like a burden and I'm angry at myself for not trying enough is there something I can do or do I just have to bring myself or um, I just have to bring myself to start talking like push yourself to start talking every everybody's different and issues can be different I think we'd all would agree that some topics aren't hard to talk about, right? We can open up easily maybe about our struggles in our relationship with our sister or our best friend or that issue we have at work. That stuff might be kind of easy or it could be hard. No judgments. I'm just saying that some issues for some of us will be easy. Then there's those ones that we might not even realize how painful they are for us or that we aren't open to talking about it and we'll start the conversation then we find ourselves dissociating or we find ourselves going blank and not being able to find the words. Like you said, having a quiet session where we're like, I don't, I don't know. You know, we don't know what to, how to answer their questions or what to say. So there, there's always going to be that. And I don't want you to think that that's unnatural or that that's not okay because it's completely okay. It's very normal. Now, if we're trying to open up more, and I saw in the comments, somebody put this um, in there, but writing things out ahead of time, like even if it's just on our phone in our notes, if we can just read directly from our notes in the session, that can help us get out something that maybe we wouldn't normally be able to get out. I've also told you guys over the years that it's okay if your therapist says it's okay, it's okay to text or email things and say, hey, I just wanted to get this over to you for the next session because I know I won't bring it up if I'm, you know, in session. That can be a great way to get the information out and to talk to them. Um, but if if we're like focusing in on being able to open up in therapy when they ask questions and, you know, being able to push through a lot of it is building up our resources. And I know so many of you hate that word resources, but let's just call them, you know, things that calm us down. We have to find some things that calm us down in session. Now that could be, um, if it's okay with your therapist, if you have a, a dog that you could bring with you, I've had patients bring dogs over the years. Um, my newer office, they wouldn't let me for a while and now it's okay. But so bringing animals can sometimes be helpful. There's a psychiatrist that I love, um, Dr. Le uh, Leonida Yi. She brings her dog with her all the time. And I've always recommended my patients who love dogs go see her. She's wonderful. Um, so having a, a dog or a, you know an animal in session, if you can, that's great. Because a lot of us are doing it over Zoom, have your animal with you. Um, there's a reason that they're called emotional support animals, right? Because they help us feel calm and okay. Uh, silly putty, um, if you can doodle while you talk, sometimes having something else that we're focused on keeps it. Sorry, I've got I've got pod nose, you guys. My nose itches because I'm talking in the vibrations. Um, but if you can doodle or do something while you're talking to your therapist, that can keep a lot of us 
on point to have that conversation because we have just enough of a distraction from how we're feeling and what we're going through. I don't know. It's a very, it works for some people, especially my patients who kind of teeter on that ADHD type thing. If we have something else going on, they can sometimes keep talking longer, be more focused. It works for different people for different reasons, but that's one thing that could work. Um, maybe, you know, doing some calming exercises before your session, like whether that means you do the shakeout, like the full body shake, or you talk to someone in your life who's really supportive, loving, and calming. Maybe you have a, a meditation you listen to or a mantra or just calming voice on YouTube. I know a lot of people love podcasts for that reason. If you have someone that you follow who has a really nice voice that's soothing to you, pop your earbuds in and listen to that for, you know, 15, 20 minutes before your session. There are some things that we can do to calm our system down, which is what is usually preventing us from opening up is that that activation of our nervous system, that anxiety or that feeling of overwhelm or racing thoughts, right? That is what will stop us. And so if we can find a way to feel okay and calm, right, we can breathe and we feel like, you know, we are soothed in this area. It's a very like neutral or safe situation for us then we t tend to be more readily able to open up and to talk about those difficult things. And so just consider that. Try to be curious about what could be soothing. Like are there things, you might already have certain things you do at home when you feel overwhelmed. Like even putting lotion on our hands because kind of by putting that lotion on, it's like we're giving ourselves a little hand massage. That can kind of, that can help. Washing our face, brushing our hair, brushing our teeth, taking a bath. I mean, there's tons of things that we can do. And so just try to pay attention to that. I know that even I want to um, also mention a member of our community, this is years ago, had told me about weighted vests. I know a lot of you find weighted blankets soothing, but if you're up and about and doing things or you're going to therapy, like how do I keep myself calm with that? Weighted vests are a thing you can purchase. I think that's super cool. So if that's really soothing, you could put one of those on when you go into session or when you're doing your Zoom um, or whatever. All of those could really, really, really help. And the last thing I want to say about this is the person who asked the question said, and I'm angry at myself for not trying enough. You are trying enough. It's just really difficult. And I would encourage you to like what I was saying in question number one, my answer to that was like to, to manage that self-talk and to recognize when we're talking shit to ourselves and try to use some of those bridge statements or a little bit more positive, right? We need to just move them into at least a more balanced um, area. And so I would encourage you to challenge that because you aren't, it's not that you're not trying enough. It's back to that. A lot of us have this firmly held belief that we're stupid and lazy or just not good enough. I feel like this thought is coming out of that and I want you to challenge it consider a more balanced thought like it's possible that what I'm trying to work on or what I'm trying to talk about is just really hard for me it's possible or maybe you know I could be trying a little bit harder but I just don't know how maybe I don't know how to try hard enough and I know that you're like that doesn't sound that positive the goal isn't for them to be positive it's just for them to be not as negative and so if we can challenge those thoughts and move them into a more positive space, that could be really, really helpful as well. And so that's that's how you do it. We got to talk more kindly to ourselves about the process. You can even check your facts in, within that space too. Like, okay, I'm angry at myself for not trying enough. Okay, what what's my evidence that I'm not trying hard enough? Let's see, look into that. Well, I'm not able to talk in therapy. Well, does that necessarily mean that I'm not trying hard enough? No. Am I like coasting and not not like really trying to come up with answers in therapy? Well, no, I really do try to come up with answers. Hmm. Maybe we don't have any evidence to support that, right? So check your facts, 
talk more kindly to yourself and find some ways to soothe your system. Okay, let's move on to question number four. But first, some chapstick. Okay, question four says, Hey Katie, any tips for not being so nervous in therapy and being able to open up? I started getting worried about some of the homework she was giving me to say hi to someone as I walked by, so she had me do square breathing as she took some notes. I did it, but she complained that I wasn't doing it properly because I refused to breathe deeply as it would make noise and be awkward. <laughs> uh, breathing, I always breathe with my patients and do the breathing with them because otherwise it is awkward because it's so quiet. I mean, therapy is like, if no one's talking, it's like silent, you know, and can be super fucking awkward. So Number one, my first thought was ask her to do the breathing with you. She should. I mean, I've never told a patient no. Like, why wouldn't I do the breathing with them? And I always prompt it anyway. You know, I do it with them automatically. So the first thing would be to ask her to do it with you because I'm sure she will. Hopefully, I can't see why she wouldn't. Like I said, I always automatically do it. So ask her to do it with you. And then again, going back to the question I just answered, question number three, nerves in therapy are so common. Anxiety in therapy is very common. And I think that the, the best way to manage that is to find things that are soothing. And I wish I could tell you guys like this one thing will always work. I will tell you this, that shaking it out from head to toe, that full body shake I've been talking about seriously helps. I wouldn't tell you if it didn't. I also have been doing this thing where, and I don't know if there's any research to support it, but I saw it on TikTok and one of our community members tagged me and it was like, this is so interesting about and I know in yoga, they say that you have to relax your jaw to relax your mind. Again, I don't know if there's research to support this, but I've been trying to relax my jaw and get my tongue. This sounds so weird, but your tongue, probably even as I tell you this, is pushed to the top of your mouth, like maybe even up against your front teeth and just relaxing your tongue, relaxing your jaw. It makes me feel better. It calms me down. I try to do it after I do that full body shake and it really helps with that anxiety and getting that kind of that stress response that cues us up for action, it gives it a release. So I don't feel that energy coursing through my body anymore. So those are just a couple of things I know always help people or have really always helped me. And I've heard from a lot of other um, people in our community that they've been trying it. it's been working. So give those things a try. Breathing exercises don't work for everyone. So I just want you to know that if that square breathing doesn't help you, it's okay. Not all is lost. Again, we have to find some of those things in session that are soothing, whether it's wearing a weighted vest, maybe it's silly putty, maybe we put lotion on, maybe we bring an animal or, you know, have our dog come in with us, or maybe we ask our therapist if they have a dog. I mean, I don't know. There are certain things that we can ask, certain things we can work on so that we feel as calm and relaxed as possible. Again, I recognize it's therapy. Most of us feel a little bit nervous, but, um, we want to get us at least to a point where we can participate and not feel so queued up and anxious. And now let's get into the other part. We said, I started getting worried about some of the homework she was giving me to say hi to someone as I walked by. And I think that um, there, I want everyone to know that in therapy, it is 100% okay for us to not be able to do the homework. We just have to tell our therapist. I've had so many patients over the years like lie to me and say, oh, I'm doing it all and it's fine. And so I think that they're getting better. And so I make the homework harder, right? We're pushing through. It's like we're going from 101 to 102 to 202. You know, I'm talking like college classes, if you guys don't get that reference, like moving up in steps to harder and harder lessons, right? And then come to find out that even the basic ones were too difficult. And so there's no shame 
There's no reason to be embarrassed if we can't do the homework. As a therapist, just know that when we give you homework, it's our way of like seeing where you're at. So I'll usually start with something that I think is like, you know, either medium to easy, just to see if you we can do that. Because I've had, for instance, an example of this would be like my depressed patients who were trying to work on those negative thoughts. And I'm like, let's identify like three feelings or something. And they can't. And they tell me no. Then I'm like, okay, well, tell me how, what you're able to do every day. Like what are you able to feed yourself? Are we showering? I'll ask basic questions about taking care of those basic needs. Come to find out we're not even able to do that. So then, then the goals shift, right? Then the homework is I want you to shower once this week. And I want you to, um, you know, order some food that's already prepped so that you can I make sure you're eating regularly or whatever, right? There's certain things that we'll try to do um, to to start with those basic needs first or taking medication regularly. There's certain things that we can help, um, you know, that will be the homework early on as we move into things. Knowing also, I want to throw it out there also that homework can get hard, harder and be more intensive and then go back to easy depending on how we're doing, right? We all know, especially working on trauma and processing through it can be like, five steps forward, seven steps back, two steps forward, one step back. It's, you know, it's not linear. We don't just get better and better and better. We can have down days and down weeks too. So anyways, when it comes to homework, it's completely okay for you to tell your therapist, I can't do that. And I've been trying and it's not working and I feel bad about it, but I'm doing my best. Your therapist say, thanks for letting me know. Okay, well, let's try something else, right? We're going to do something different. Um, I don't like that she complained that you weren't doing it properly for the breathing, but to that end, I would just ask her, will you do it with me? And hopefully that kind of just gives you some ideas and some ways to, to keep going. And also if you don't feel like your therapist is working with you and hearing you out and working at a pace that is comfortable yet challenging, then you might want to find someone else. There's also that, right? We know how important the therapeutic relationship is when we're doing this hard work. And if you don't feel supported, we want to make sure we get you someone who who helps you feel supported, right? Oh, I got to itch, you guys. Okay, let's move on to question number five. Question number five says, hey, Katie, I've been struggling to have calls ever since I can remember. So many of you have told me about this. I've been working on my social anxiety and fear of talking on the phone and have tried to have calls, which I needed to do, and it took me a lot to get there. Now, I came across a very unfriendly person who made me feel completely stupid for having questions, so I don't ever want to make a call ever again because I feel validated in my belief that all people will make me feel like the worst and not taken seriously when making calls already felt like a huge mountain in front of me. How can I get myself to believe that that's not true? Because I suffer from a lot more anxiety now just thinking of having to talk on the phone. This is a great question. Like I said, it's super common. I heard from a lot of you struggled with this. The best advice I have for things like this is exposure therapy. I know you hate it already. You already hate my answer. You hate me. It's terrible, right? I get it. S exposure therapy sounds really terrible. It sounds really scary. But here's the, the secret of it is number one, before we even get into any exposures, uh, we have to build up those resources, those things that calm your system down, right? Like the shaking it out, maybe doing stretches, maybe I take a warm bath. We have to learn, maybe I rub my hand, maybe maybe I do like breathing exercises, I do some of those. There's a lot of different things that we can do as resources to calm our nervous system down. And that's very important to have on board before we start the exposure process. And I have a whole video about exposure therapy. You can get on YouTube and just search Katie Morton exposure therapy. So look that up. And, and watch it. 
But really briefly for the sake of the podcast, we build up those resources. Then we usually start with imagining that we're doing after, well, then we build the hierarchy. Okay. So the hierarchy is when we build up our anxiety from zero to 10. So zero being like, I'm asleep. I'm so calm. 10 being like, I'm having a panic attack. Right. And we build up the steps to making these calls. So 10 would probably be making a call to a stranger, right? Zero being, I never, I know I have to never make any calls ever again for like 20 years. And so once we build up that hierarchy, then we can start, you know, doing the exposures and start imagining that we're doing it and then doing it. And so it's just step by step by step. And the great news and something I think is wonderful about exposure therapy is that once we do it, we don't have to do it again. It's like I'm not 100% of the time, but most often you don't have to have any additional sessions. Like once it's done, it's done. You may have to have a booster, like may have to have a booster session here or there. But if we've done it properly and we've actually pushed ourselves to do the exposures, the the number of times like relapse rates are very low. And you can actually look it up for yourself if you want to know, but exposure therapy is extremely effective. And also, I think it's important to know that you can, it's not ideal, but you can do exposure therapy on your own without your therapist. Uh, you don't have to have someone. It's, it might be difficult and it's like sheer willpower to push through and to expose yourself to something. But we do know the reason that the calls and being on the phone, making calls is getting harder and harder and more and more overwhelming is that we... Uh, haven't given ourselves enough opportunities to do it and have a good experience, right? And then you had the one experience that was bad. And so it's like you've proven that your anxiety is warranted and real and there's a reason for it. And like, yes, I shouldn't be making calls because people are always going to make me feel stupid. That's not the case 99% of the time, but we're going to have some people who are just rude. Like people at doctor's offices, someone said in the comments, are not the warmest. I agree. They're so business, but that doesn't have anything to do with you. That's just them trying to get your appointment, get your insurance or whatever, and get in and out off the phone. That's just how it is. They're not, they're not always friendly people. So as we don't, as we refuse to make phone calls and don't do it and don't do it. I've talked about this when it comes to anxiety, how our world just keeps getting smaller and smaller. As we don't expose ourselves to the phone calls and doing things like that, it makes it harder and harder to want to do it. But as we expose ourselves and we get more and more experience with it, we'll prove to our brain that, you know, 99% of the time it's perfectly fine and people are friendly. And that 1% people can be jerks, but that has nothing to do with us, right? And we'll be able to see that and experience that because we've done it and we've practiced it. So anyways, long story short, the best way is exposure therapy. I know you guys hate that answer, but I promise you it will be worth it because who wants to keep being afraid to make calls and feel really anxious about it and put it off? Nobody wants to feel that way. So if we can do it, I have a whole video explaining it. There's books about it if you want to walk through it on your own, but having a therapist who works like specializes in, in anxiety or exposure therapy would be perfect. Okay. Cool. 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 Question number six says, what does it mean when you get triggered so easily? I would be lying in bed ready for sleep and my brain suddenly hits me with these daunting, embarrassing memories that make me feel so bad about myself. To cope, I usually make myself super tired during the day so that when I finally hit the bed, my body immediately goes to sleep. Thought stopping and pull, pulling yourself into happy memory helps, but only for a bit. Two minutes later, when my brain comes up with a hundred other sad, embarrassing moments to think about. Got it. Now, I don't know what it is, but our brain, if we have an anxious brain, if we have anxiety, our brain loves to freak out and have racing 
thoughts, intrusive thoughts, when things aren't busy, when we're not distracted. And part of it could be um, like I have a whole bunch of videos about anxiety if you want to learn about your specific anxiety issue. But when it comes to this and laying down in bed and then having the thoughts race, I just want you to know, first of all, it's very, very normal because the busyness of our day isn't there to distract us. And so our brain, our anxiety brain just runs away with things. And part of it is like the thought stopping and all of that, but you're right, it doesn't help forever. It only helps us for a little bit and hopefully we can, you know, try to go to sleep. But the thing also is we're building a muscle by allowing our brain to run away with these unhelpful anxiety thoughts about bad and embarrassing things we've done in the past. We've all done that, right? You're like, why am I thinking about something that I did back in, for me, I'm like back in 1998, like in high school, why is that important? So I don't know why our brain does that, but we do we don't have to go on that ride with it right it's trying to pull us on this this uh horrible memory uh i don't know this like we're on a road trip through our past of horrible experiences and we don't have to get on that i don't have to get in that car and take that road trip i can say no and yes it could be hard but especially when we're laying down to go to bed sometimes it's okay to get up and do something else do not watch tv or get on a backlit device we know that makes it harder for us to fall asleep but Again, going back to what I've been talking about through all the questions kind of here is we can find things that are soothing to our system. We can do those instead. Maybe I splash some water in my face or maybe I fold clothes, doing repetitive behaviors like putting the uh, laundry away or the dishes away or folding clothes, something that's simple and repetitive can be soothing and help us calm down. So there's a bunch of different things we can do. And I would encourage you to do those if you can't stop the thoughts any other way. We could shake it out. Um, we can write out some stuff. We can do whatever we need to do to kind of get it out of our head. But that's why it's happening at night. And another option, to be honest, the best way to really make this go away is to figure out where our anxiety comes from. I have a, a belief that all anxiety stems from a lack of self-confidence and self-worth. We have a lot of negative self-talk that builds up into that. And I would encourage you to, to recognize that and work in therapy to make those, again, make those thoughts more balanced and move them over using those bridge statements into a more positive space. But a lot of it's just building that new muscle of, I don't want to think about that. I'm not going to let my brain pull me over in that direction. And we have to fight it and fight to not allow it to do that. And sometimes we're going to lose and that's okay. But it's just, it's a new process. Um, something that helps me also when my thoughts start racing and I, I have like these worries like, oh my God, I'm going to forget to do that. Or it could be like to-do list running. I keep a notepad by my bed and I jot things down so that I can sleep and so that I don't forget. Um, or you can put it in the notes on your phone if you just have your phone by your bed. There's a lot of ways that we can kind of get that stuff out. Um, but I would encourage you to maybe, so doing those things. And then my last tip is to set up a routine. Having the same things that we do as we get ready for bed. It It's soothing to our system. There's a reason that with children usually like we uh, bathe them. We put them in their PJs, change their diaper and all that stuff, right? We feed them and we put them to bed. And it's like that routine. Maybe we sing them a song or read a book or whatever. But that routine readies them for sleep. And so as adults, we still need those routines to ready our bodies for sleep. Now, I know no one's going to change us and bathe us, but we can take a shower. We can rub on our feet with some lotion and put our warm, cozy pajamas on and we can get in bed. Like we can have this step of what we do. Maybe we have chamomile tea and then we read our book for 20 minutes and then lights out, right? I find something else that helps me. And I guess this is the last thing. Something that's helped me stop the racing thoughts because this, 
the last year has been really rough, especially for those of us who already have a little more anxiety than other people. Um, the, you know, stress of the years just oh, made it like oh, so much worse. But when I'm having a hard time going to sleep and my thoughts are racing, I love reading a fictional book that has a great story. It could be like a Harry Potter book because I love Harry Potter. Can't help myself. I get caught up in the story. And then when I try to go to sleep and I lay down, I can think about that storyline and I'll have dreams about that storyline. And so I don't end up falling into those worry, embarrassed, guilt-driven thoughts. And it kind of keeps my anxiety at bay. So those are some tips and tools and things. Let me know what works. If you don't like any of it, that's fine too. Just let me know that. But I hope that it helps. Okay, let's move into question number seven. It says, hi, Katie. How can I deal with loving and hating my parents at the same time? How do I know if I'm doing enough to help them and they just ask um, to help them and they just ask too much or if I'm not doing enough? Hmm. I struggle with generalized anxiety disorder and quiet BPD or borderline personality disorder. And I'm a highly sensitive person that was emotionally neglected as a child. I think I'm still neglected as a 23 year old. I feel like I'm the root of my parents' problems. I'm too emotional for them. And they think I only care about myself and money. My older sister is well put together, helpful and smart. She's their biggest pride. My parents are pretty ignorant when it comes to psychological issues. They think that I'm not like her just because I choose not to be. They make me feel like I only take and don't give back. Mental issues are an excuse for being lazy in their opinion. Ugh, I hate the ignorance, man. Ignorance. How to deal with loving them and being angry at the same time. I want my dad to see me for who I am. I'm scared he'll pass away one day still thinking that I don't care and that I'm not smart. I have to live with my parents for another few years as I finish my university and it's hard not to share my feelings with them every once in a while, hoping they'll finally care or won't say I'm overreacting or won't compare me to my sister. How do I come to terms with my situation, survive in that environment and love them regardless? Thank you for everything. Love from Poland. And also she added in there that she had been seeing a therapist for over two years and then he had to move away and so therapy immediately ended. Um, I have a couple of thoughts on this. I think a lot of people love and hate their parents at the same time. But I also want to throw in that if our parents are emotionally ne abusive, because neglect is abuse. So if, if we feel like we're abused by our parents, I know you have to live with them for a few more years for to get through university, but no one says that we have to have these great relationships with them. I know it sucks. I know it's sad and we have to grieve that loss. But I just want to put that out there because I think so often we fight tooth and nail for these familial relationships that just don't work like we can't make them understand we can't make them hear you out and be reasonable and and know that you you're not overreacting to you you're feel you just need them to validate some of what you're feeling they could say you know because you have a borderline personality disorder I will let you know that to people who do not have BPD when we feel emotionally charged and upset, it can be overwhelming for them because they do not express emotion in, such, in the way that we do. And so they can think we're overreacting when we feel like it's a completely normal reaction. So I just wanted to put that out there um, because the emotional volatility of those of us who have BPD can be difficult for those who don't to understand. And it sounds like your parents aren't maybe willing to learn and understand because once people understand how to navigate relationships with those of us with BPD it can be fine but I have a feeling that's what's happening here but just to get back to the relationship 
We can't make our parents or other people in our lives want to understand, want to learn, and want to do better. We, we just can't. They have to choose to. They have to seek to understand, right? We know how that works. And I know a lot of us think, oh, but they should be able to read our minds. And oh, they should want to. Well, yeah, they should want to know more about it. But they don't. And we can't force it. And no matter what we do, we're not going to make them get better. Does that make sense? We can't make anybody get better. I wish we could. As a therapist, that would make my job so much easier. But unfortunately, they have to want to do the work and they have to actually take the steps to do it. And so part of, I would honestly, I know you're waiting to get back in therapy and I think that that is great. I think being in therapy would be super, super helpful. Something that I might recommend you try starting now is finding a DBT or dialectical behavior therapy workbook. Um, I know they have tons of them in English. I don't know if you would prefer them to be in Polish, but you can look, you know, on Amazon or wherever you would get uh, workbooks and order one of those. And, and use some of the tools. So I have one in my Amazon. You can go to my Amazon shop. It's uh, it's linked in the description, but it's also just amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. And you can find all the workbooks that I've used. And there's, I think there's two in there that are dialectical behavior therapy focused, but I think a lot of those tools could help, especially when it comes to, you know, emotion regulation and interpersonal effectiveness skills. Those are a couple pillars within the DBT system that I think could really, you could benefit from. But again, I think we can't make them want to get better. We can't make them under help seek to understand us, but we can surround ourselves with people who do. And so I would encourage you, if you have a friend who's really close and who understands to lean into those relationships, if you can get into group therapy online in some way, shape or form, maybe ask your old therapist if they have any recommendations, I would do that. Um, I know there's tons of free groups at hope for recovery. I think it's .org. Um, but the number four, hope for recovery with the number four.org. You can go there for some free groups and things like that. Um, but getting that support outside of your family, I think will be key to your healing because in wanting to, uh, the main question is how do you deal with loving and hating your parents at the same time? I think part of it is grieving. So a lot of what I've talked with, uh, my patients about, and even a lot of you guys over the years is often we, we want our parents to do this, right? We want them to do X, let's say, but they're only capable of doing Y. So it's okay to write down what we wish they could do. So we write down the X, we write down the Y, what they're able to do, and we grieve that difference. And we talk about that in therapy. Like I wish that my my mom could uh, could listen to me and rub my back while I cried and tell me it was going to be okay and that I had every right to feel the way I felt. I really would like that. I'd really like to be able to tell her what I'm going through and what I'm experiencing and have her listen. And, and have her, you know, comfort me. I'd really like that. I'd really like to feel seen and important to my dad or whatever it is, right? But they're only capable of doing this. And then we get to be sad, unfortunately. You know, we, I give you permission to grieve, be angry, be sad. I think that's where the like anger and hate is coming from is because they don't understand and they're not seeking to understand. And we just keep hoping that they will. And we can't bend them to our ways. We can't make them get better. And I know that that's really hard to acknowledge and admit, but it's the truth. And so anyways, I think getting DBT therapy will be super beneficial. And those workbooks could be helpful now while you wait. And then taking some time to take stock of what you would like from your parents and what they're able to give you. And then grieving that difference. All of that is just part of that healing process when we have you know, not the best relationships with those that are in our family. And I'm so sorry that, you know, 
that you're having such a tough time. We've all been there. No family's perfect. And we all have to grieve something, you know, what we'd hoped our parents would do and they can't, you know, we can't, our expectations don't line up with what they're able to do, right? Okay, let's move on to question number eight. It says, hey, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, I have a friend I confide in with a lot of my mental battles and she, quote unquote, gets it. She's been there for a majority of the times of crisis and has been crucial within my support network. She is also a highly sensitive person along with her own anxiety-based challenges. Long story short, sometimes I feel that when she talks about her own issues, I can get sent into a panic attack quicker, of course, because if you're a highly sensitive person, we have, um, it's kind of like we have no boundaries around emotions. We need to learn how to place those boundaries and separate ourselves from each other. Not that her battles are similar to mine, but I don't feel like I have as much capacity as her to reciprocate the support she gives me. And I feel bad to let her know that this happens after spending long periods of time with her. She's such a kind and time generous person. She means well, but she can talk a million miles an hour. My aunt is like that. And I don't know how to let her know nicely that this is happening without sounding rude. The last thing I want her to do is have her own thoughts spiral out of control because of me and any poor choice words I express. Would you have any advice on this? I feel bad for asking and I hope I don't look like the bad guy, but I don't want to keep having panic attacks while we're hanging out. It's not very fun for both of us. I hope you have a lovely time away. Thanks for being amazing, an amazing rock for us all. Of course, I'm happy I can do it. I'm glad I can be here. Um, okay, so, and you don't sound rude. A lot of us struggle with this and the work actually isn't in, yes, you should communicate with her and let her know that you're working on this, but the work is actually on your side, recognizing what your boundaries are. Now, you are not her. She is not you. You're comparing your abilities to her abilities and that's just not fair, right? My abilities aren't the same as yours and yours aren't the same as mine and that's okay. I get tired after being socially engaged with people for a few hours. I get overwhelmed. Like, even if it's people I love that's super easy after four hours of conversation, like if we have like a, you know, we're out to dinner and then you, st not that we do that anymore because thanks COVID, but let's say you're out to dinner and you get drinks and you're out all night. I love that, but then I'm tired and I don't want to see people for a couple of days. I have to like, oh, I have to recharge, right? And so that's me. And, you know, Sean or my mom or other people in my life might be different. Maybe um, my mom I know is not as social as I am. So maybe after two hours, she needs to recharge. But Sean, maybe he's more social and he doesn't need that. He, he could see people day after day after day. Everybody's different. And so you can communicate that to her. I think that it would be very healing and helpful for your relationship if you told her you are so giving of your time and so supportive. But I'm finding myself feeling overly anxious when we hang out for long periods of time. It's not on you, but I'm trying to figure out where it's coming from and how I can better manage so that doesn't happen. Let her know because the real answer is something's being triggered in you, whether it's because we don't have healthy boundaries and we allow ourselves to get like connected and enmeshed into her relationship or her situation or how she's feeling, especially because you said that, you know, she's also a highly sensitive person, which leads me to believe that you are as well. Would, so you're probably like a sponge for other people's experiences. Your empathy is overwhelming you and you're soaking in how she feels and it's compounding your anxiety. And so what are the ways that we can put boundaries in place to protect that? Does that mean that we don't spend these long periods of time with her and we communicate why that's happening? Maybe 
is it that we have to talk ourselves out of soaking it up? Like, that's not my life. That's not my problem. My, my job is to just listen and support, right? That's kind of like, as a therapist, what I do is like, that's not my life. Their problems are not mine, but I, and, and I don't know if this will help you, but the way that I talk to myself about it is, and you might find this hurtful, but I hope you guys find this helpful. When I leave my office, I tell myself I'm leaving all their problems here because they're not mine. And I don't own them, right? That's a boundary. And then I tell myself, but I'm so glad that they had the strength and courage to come in and see me to get better. And I hope that we're making progress that feels good to them. So it's almost like I'm leaving this here. It's not mine. I don't own it, but I do own the fact that I'm on this path, helping them. We're working together and I'm glad that they have that support and I'm proud of them. So it's making it, you're externalizing it, their problem, not mine. I'm not taking ownership over it because I don't own it. And I don't know if you can talk yourself out of it that way, but that's another way to kind of have those boundaries. Um, but yeah, to figure out what's triggering this, what's upsetting, what's causing the panic. Is it because she talks so quickly? Like give yourself an opportunity to be curious, communicate to her that you're having a tough time and you're trying to work on that and acknowledge, let her know it's not you. It's the, it's me and the, my, I don't know what's going on, you know, that's why I'm trying to learn. And then we can place, you know, some things on boundaries and some conversations that we think could help us kind of better manage that anxiety and that buildup and that potential panic that we've been experiencing. And I know it's hard, but be patient with yourself as you try to figure it out because only you know what is overwhelming you. And I would assume my hypothesis is that you get too absorbed into her issues and you feel like they're yours and you take them on. And then you have guilt around the fact that you can't properly help her because by the time you've absorbed all of her stuff, you're overwhelmed because you also have your own stuff. There's this uh, Instagram thing I wanted to share. Maybe I'll share it today or tomorrow, but it it's, it shows a person holding a really heavy bag filled with stuff. You don't know what it is. It's a drawing. Another person is trying to hand them their equally large bag filled with stuff. And on the one bag, it says, I can't take your shit. I've got my own right now. And that's how we have to think of things is you're full. Your bag is full. You can't carry anymore. So we need to not take that on. And we have to figure out how we can healthfully do that in a relationship, which part of it is probably taking more breaks. Part of it is communicating with her when you're feeling overwhelmed. And a huge part of it's going to be just recognizing your own overwhelm before you're in panic. And that just, you know, it's just a little, little curiosity, no judgment about yourself and how you're feeling so that you can better manage it. Cool. Cool. Let's go into question number nine. It says, hi, Katie, how do I be comfortable with being in the gray area? <gasps> gray. I'm so used to being in the black and white area where I've been conditioned to be when I was younger. I can't seem to be comfortable with the gray area and would be anxious, worrying if I have made the right choices, quote unquote, right choices. I know that life is full of being in the gray area and how can I start to embrace the gray? For example, I woke up late as I overslept in the morning and I felt that my whole day would then go wrong. I tried to have a balanced thought by telling myself, even though I woke up late, it doesn't mean that I will screw my day up. It just means that I need more sleep so that I would have the energy for the day. But I find this a bit fake as this statement is not convincing enough since it's overpowered by my all or nothing thinking. I hope that makes sense. Think for all that you do. Oh, and side note, I'm diagnosed with depression. Okay, so this is a great question. And I think a lot of us struggle to live in the gray and we feel the urge to be pulled into that black or white, all or nothing. I'm in or I'm out. And challenging those thoughts is great, but it might be, I don't know. I mean, that was a more balanced thought and I love it. 
But I'm thinking because you said it was just it didn't seem real. It wasn't convincing enough. I think it's more the follow up thoughts. Like maybe we instead of trying to come up with a balanced thought about, um, you know, my whole day is going to go wrong because I overslept. I'm curious about the deeper thoughts because that might just be like a, a bubbled up to the top, like a surface level thought. And I think it's coming out of something deeper. I know you're like, Katie, I'm already doing all this work and now you're asking me to do more and I'm sorry. But I, I'm curious because part of me wonders if the thoughts are more about maybe you being lazy or stupid. I find that a lot with my patients that that's a firmly held belief that we're lazy and stupid. Or uh, I always do these things and I'm always messing things up. Um, I, I don't know, just maybe dig a little deeper and see if that, that's just one of my first thoughts. When I read this, I was like, maybe there are more deeply held beliefs at play here. And that's why that more balanced thought was like not believable because it actually wasn't addressing the real concern or the real issue. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Okay. So there's that component. And then part of it is sitting in that discomfort and challenging thoughts along the way. So just having that one balanced thought is not enough ammunition to take down the army of negative thoughts that are rolling your way. And I just like to think of it as like an army, right? Because it can feel like we, we're one person with a shotgun and there is like 400 people coming in like tanks and there's like a helicopter. But, you know, we've seen those movies, right? And it can feel like that with the negative thoughts. And all we have is our one shotgun and we're like, shit, I am outnumbered. And so instead of just focusing on this one and having this one balanced thought, I would encourage you to start noticing those negative ones. It's okay if for a while our days are ruined, we go black and white. That's not, it's not, again, it's not all or nothing. It's it's a process, not perfection. It's not, oh, I'm working on this, it's going to be better. It's I'm going to continue working on this. So just start noticing the negative thoughts that come up. And start coming up with more balanced thoughts for all of those because that's building your army. Not to mention, we have to build up more tools than just the thought process and the thought stopping. Maybe we have more supports that we vent to about the fact that we slept in and we we talk to our friends or our coworkers about it. Or maybe we do a shakeout and we do some stretching or we exercise to get that out a little bit, like 30 minutes of something that gets our heart going, like a nice uh, swift walk could do it, um, or a YouTube workout at home. You know, there's a lot of different things that we can do. Maybe we find a long, warm shower soothing at the end of the day, or we uh, get to play our favorite video game. Again, not all these skills are going to be coping skills. Some are just distractions, and that's okay too. They all have a place, but just make sure we're doing a little bit of both. And then one thing that I do think could be really helpful in this, and you're going to think, Katie, I don't really have any impulses, but an impulse log. Now you can go to selfinjury.com, I think it is. Let me actually pull it up here for you. Um, yeah, selfinjury.com, and then it's their... Uh, how to use the impulse control log. They call it impulse control log. I'll link this in the description, the link to that, uh, that site. But having an impulse log can help us from acting out of those automatic thoughts. Now, this doesn't mean that the action has to be like uh, urge to self-injure, use eating disorders, or uh, you know, spend or dr use drugs and alcohol. It doesn't have to be that kind of impulse. Impulses can be to live in that black and white, to go all or nothing. So just tracking down, like, what is the thought? What's this automatic thought? What's my urge to, like, what am I going to try to do to support that thought, right? If the thought is, oh, my whole day is going to suck because I slept in, then am I doing other things to set myself up to feel bad and to have my day suck? It's possible. 
right? It's possible that then instead of looking at things through regular glasses, they are skewed and every situation that maybe doesn't go 100% my way, I'm like, well, that's because I slept in and I'm all fucked because that day didn't go, you know, and we just prove it to ourselves. We have, you know, it's kind of like confirmation bias and we're just looking for things to prove that thing that we already think, right? Instead of being able to uh, non-judgmentally, you know, glasses off, clearly see what's happening and be able to look at it from a balanced perspective. We're like unable to, right? Because we just throw on those like confirmation bias glasses and look for things to support it. And so we have to kind of challenge that. So anyway, those are just some of my thoughts around it. I think um, I think we are, especially when we've been conditioned to think in black and white, it's going to take a little while to like reprogram to or like deprogram that so that we can be comfortable in the unknown, in the maybe, in the middle, in the it's good enough, right? Um, I tried my best and it will be okay. We Those thoughts don't come easily. And so tracking them and using the impulse logs, finding other ways to help us feel better, challenging that confirmation bias, all of that I think will help us be a little bit more comfortable in the gray area and just know that it's, a again, it's a process, not perfection. We're not going to be comfortable right away. There's not going to be one tool that we're like, poof, I feel all better. We didn't get this way overnight. It's not going to fix itself overnight. But little by little, thought after thought, choice after choice, we'll start to feel better. And keep me posted. Let me know how that goes. Okay, let's move on to question number 10. Question number 10 says, Hey Katie, ever since I walked in on my sister's suicide attempt two months ago, I've been seeing hallucinations at night. I wake up to my sister's voice whimpering my name, see a figure of her in the corner of my room, or see police lights, probably because all the cops and ambulances that were there that day. I went to therapy a few times after that EMDR work, but just can't seem to talk about that event anymore without seeing flashbacks, getting extremely angry, or going into a full-blown panic mode to the point where I even vomited all over my therapist's floor. Oh, your system was so overwhelmed. I'm so sorry. I tried going on three different medications and absolutely hated it. They led to awful side effects that I can't afford to have as I still have my nursing degree to get through and I can't be reeling from side effects while caring for all of my patients. I don't know what to do anymore. It's been absolute hell living like this. I am so sorry that you walked in on that and I'm, I'm just, I'm so sorry that you're dealing with this. What is happening is you suffered a trauma and you're having post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. Like that overwhelm that system overwhelm and getting so overwhelmed that you threw up on your therapist floor is a symptom of, of PTSD. Um, even hearing things and it's what you're having is flashbacks. And I know it feels like hallucinations. We can have that as a result of our PTSD, but I just want you to know that all of this is very normal. And I don't know if EMDR was, is the best for you because we're too overwhelmed. We're into panic mode. You said you get you know, extremely angry or go into full-blown panic mode. Our nervous system is is all, you know, I've talked about in the past about going into fight, flight, freeze, that stress response without any action we can take to get that energy out. You're caught in that and the energy is just swirling in your body. And so we need to give it a way to exit. Now that can be through that shakeout, doing some exercise. I think that that would be really beneficial for you. Also journaling is another way to get that, those thoughts and energy out, um, and talking with your therapist and starting to put the story together as much as you can and find ways to soothe your system along the way. So the goal, the reason I think EMDR may not be the best fit for you right now is because we have to be somewhat calm and present. So dissociation cannot be a thing. Panic attacks cannot be happening. 
otherwise it doesn't work, right? I've talked about that. Um, my friend, uh, Dr. Alexa Altman has shared with us many times how we have to be able to stay present in the moment and not dissociated, not our system can't be overwhelmed in order for the reprocessing to happen. Otherwise, it, it can't happen because we're not really there. Do you know what I mean? When we're dissociated, it's like our brain is like, ah, pulls a ripcord. It's like, I'm out of here. That's too much. And if our, we're not really present, how can we process through that situation? And so I think stepping back from the EMDR and doing more of the, maybe the trauma timeline or the trauma narrative, meaning just putting it into story form or, you know, figuring out where you feel it in your body and all of that work, I think, will be done ahead of EMDR and then moving in, into EMDR because we need you to be able to talk through the story a little bit without feeling overwhelmed and to have your resources to calm your system down as you do that work. And we want to build up those resources it's like a new muscle, right? We want it to get really strong before we do the EMDR. And so try to find some things that calm your system down. Like I said, try that shakeout, try some exercise, uh, try journaling. Try, uh, you know, maybe taking a warm bath or using silly putty, anything that feels good to you. Coloring. I personally, I haven't been doing it recently, actually, but I love coloring on like a paper color page because like the way the crown hits that paper, I don't know, it just feels nice. It's soothing. It looks good. I like it. Find something like that that feels good for you that helps calm you down. I have a whole video that all of you can go to because I've been talking about these resources and coping skills all throughout today's episode. Go to YouTube and search Katie Morton coping skills. I have 25 it's called 25 Coping Skills. There's 24 that I offer in the video and the comments are filled with tons from all of you lovely people. So check that out. I don't think medications are that great for you right now, especially because you're doing your nursing degree and they can make us kind of cloudy. Um, but, you know, I'm glad that you're open to the medications and it might be something that we we try at a later time. But I do think that that, that work will hopefully help is like not doing the EMDR, EMDR just yet trying to talk it through. And I do love, and people mentioned this, I think it was in the comments of this one, but maybe another one. The Body Keeps the Score is an amazing book. I used it a lot for, because um, if you guys don't know, I have a book all about trauma called Traumatize. It's coming out this September and I will share all the information as soon as I can. Um, but I read that book and used a ton of different quotes from um, him. The author is amazing. Anyway, it's a great resource. It's a very hefty read. It's like a, a lot of research, a lot of studies, and a lot of uh, case studies with his patients where he's talking about particular situations, but super helpful, tons of information, and that might be really beneficial for you as well. But know that we're just processing a trauma it's very normal for our system to get overwhelmed. We just have to find some things that are soothing while you work to still talk about that. Because I know this sounds crazy, but the sooner we talk about the traumas, even though we've like, it's two months ago, right? It feels so fresh. It's a fresh wound. And a lot of times we're like, I don't want to get in. I well, I'll deal with it later. The sooner we talk about it, the better. It's just like a cold. If you catch a cold and you go to the doctor right away and get, I don't know, let's say, let's say you, you, maybe you're catching pneumonia, but you catch it when it, you get to go to the doctor when it's just a little chest cold and they're able to give you an antibiotic. It'll go away more quickly, right? We don't want to wait till we have full-blown pneumonia. We want to catch it and nip it in the butt early. And the same goes for post-traumatic stress disorder. So I'm glad you're speaking. I'm glad you're talking to someone. Keep doing it. We just maybe have to shift how we go about it. And I would love to hear your guys' thoughts too in those comments. Let me know what you think about this and what's maybe been the most helpful for you in your own trauma work, especially if you've had a recent trauma that you've talked through immediately. Let me know how that went. Okay, let's move into the final question. Question number 11 says, 
And I'm going to have another video coming out about this soon. So stay tuned. It says, Hey Katie, I know you've talked about maladaptive daydreaming in the past, but can you still have it if you haven't had any trauma in your life? Yes, you can. I have social anxiety and depression and tend to daydream most of the time. Okay. And there's a comment, there's a couple comments on this, but I want to answer this first part first. Yes, you can have maladaptive daydreaming if you haven't had a trauma. Now here's what maladaptive daydreaming is. If we find ourselves creating this, like, you know, we, uh, daydream. And we can have a daydream of like, oh, I imagine myself back on that, that beach in Hawaii when I had that vacation or, oh, I'm in, uh, in our mountain lodge that we went to, you know, we daydream about a beautiful, nice day and a perfect something, right? We daydream. It's very normal. Maladaptive daydream is when the daydreaming is so attractive to us that we struggle to stay present in our regular life. I think maladaptive daydream, I've talked about this in videos in the past and people can agree or disagree, but I feel like it's on the spectrum of dissociation because our regular life is too overwhelming. And a lot of times that can be due to trauma, but a lot of times that can also be due to anxiety or depression. When our regular life just does not feel comfortable, it's too, like anxiety is overwhelming. Panic attacks are overwhelming. If we're experiencing that, we don't want to be in it. So that daydream life, that world we've created is so attractive. I want to spend more time there. And we find ourselves going into that daydream on purpose and staying there all day long. So if you find yourself doing that more and more and more, it's something that you should talk to a therapist about because what we need to do is in our regular life, we need to figure out how to calm our system down, how to process through, talk about, write out, you know, cope with what we're going through so that that daydream doesn't, is not so attractive anymore because our regular life is actually okay, right? That's the goal. And so you don't have to have a trauma. You can, it says, um, I have social anxiety and depression. I think that's enough because the daydream is more comfortable. In the comments, somebody said, and also, is it still maladaptive daydreaming if someone stays a, a lot in that state, having a hard time to stop sometimes, but it's not like an alternate universe, rather imagining different scenarios or having favorite daydreams form time um, from time to time played out multiple times in one's head? Yes, it, it still is maladaptive daydreaming. It's not always an alternate universe that we've created. It can just be um, I've even had a few patients in the past that talked about like scenarios they'd replay in their head and they didn't like how they turned out, but so they created a better version that turned out the way they wanted to. And that is a tool in therapy in a lot of ways where we're like, imagine that we were strong enough to fight off that person or something like that. And we'll play through that scenario. And that's, again, it's like a coping skill. And so we've created a better scenario for us or a better situation. And so, yes, that's very normal. Um, and you have your favorite daydreams. Yes, still maladaptive daydreaming. And it says, or is just being in one's thoughts a lot in a pleasant dreamy state and having a hard time focusing on the present tasks uh, to be done. It can be both. Everyone's experience with maladaptive daydreaming is different. I've had uh, viewers and patients alike tell me that they spend a few hours a day. I've had people say they struggle to even get out of it at all. I've been like in a daydream for weeks at, on end. That can be normal. Some people can find it's just like pleasant dreaming about, a again, like replaying a scenario in a positive light it can be that. But it's all done. The reason it's not just regular daydreaming is it's done to pull us out of an uncomfortable situation that's emotionally or psychologically uncomfortable. 
And we do it so much so that it affects our ability to function in our life, right? Like we'll have full swaths of day where we don't remember anything because we were in a daydream or we weren't present in that meeting. And even though we did speak up and do the thing we're supposed to do, it was like we weren't really there and we didn't give full answers. And maybe people noticed even. I've had that happen. One of my patients had people notice. Some people say nobody notices. Again, everybody's different. And then the final question on this says, um, yes, please. I basically spend most of my time in a daydream without having any trauma because I just find my life boring. Is that also considered maladaptive daydreaming? Now, the boredom, I haven't read any articles to say that just finding our life boring is the reason to spend time in that daydream. But again, I would, even as I read this, even though I haven't found research to support it, I would say yes, because if we go back to what we're, what maladaptive daydreaming is, right? If our life isn't something that's comfortable, so boring might not be comfortable to you, we'd rather spend our time there. And we're doing it so much so that it's affecting our ability to stay present in our real life and it's affecting our ability to function, then it's maladaptive. And if you guys don't know maladaptive, like the word, like putting mal on the front of a word is like, it's a, not a healthy thing. It's not a good thing. It's like, it's the opposite of, it's like a, a bad adaptation for us, right? We're doing something and it's not helping us. It's actually hurting us. And so I would agree that I think that that is true because if you, you know, spend most of your time in a daydream, that can't feel good for you in your regular life. And that's, that can't be something that's helping you function, right? And so, yeah, I will do all, um, just so you know, I, have, I haven't I have worked out the video idea yet, but I have it in my docs as maladaptive daydreaming needs to be revisited. Someone had mentioned it last week and I took a note because I think it's something that we that I talked about years ago and I haven't talked about it since. And so we'll dig into it. I'll start, I might ask you for some of your feedback and your insights because like I've always said in the past with my expertise and your experience, we work together towards a healthy mind and a healthy body, right? So I'll work on that. I hope that those answers were helpful. Again, your answers were so great or your questions were so great. You all have such, uh, I, it just gives, it helps me better to know what your questions are, what you're struggling with, and then helps me to know what I should be putting more of my effort behind. And also, I love that you guys answer in the comments with each other because I got 220 some questions and I only got to do 11. So thank you to all of the wonderful members of our community who've shared their own insights and their own experience. That is super, super helpful. You all are the best. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you so much for listening and watching, and I will see you soon. Bye. Why you've hit a plateau Inquire all those questions You've always Wanted to know